All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Ladies and gentlemen, what's up? This is another episode of Questlove Supreme. I'm your host, Questlove Jenkins. We're with Team Supreme today. Shook Steve in the house. Hello. Hello. Quarantine Steve. Uh, Quarantine Bill. Yeah. What's up, man? How you doing? Holding it down. Okay. It asterisk or just definitive it? Holding it, semicolon, down. Everything's good. Uh, Working on some music for the street. All is well. Okay. Gotta keep the streets happy. Mm -hmm. And uh, Fonte, hello. I'm good, brother. I'm good, man doing the work as well can't complain cool cool all right well our guest today is a uh, grammy award winning singer songwriter producer composer he has actually come to us in many forms over the past three, three real. for real uh, for real either as a soloist or fronting one of his many projects sounds like Questlove. uh either <laughs> a member of the range uh, the noisemakers mm-hmm. at one point ambrosia that and ambrosia yes <laughs> <laughs> Not really, but okay. Hey, nah, we'll, we'll take it. We'll take it. Um, you know, not, wait a minute. You know what? Ah, and, and I often do this. I'm not interrupting my own intro. Yes or no? I'm a, all right. I'm a Soul Train ecologist. Is that you on Soul Train with Sheena Easton? That's hilarious. You've nailed me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yo, I just, yo. Wow. Good night. That's God bless. That's From hilarious. downtown. No, I didn't even know. I think, like, I have all the episodes and I keep them on loop. And, like, three weeks ago, she was on doing Sugar Walls. And I was like, wait a minute. Is that real? And I, <laughs> that was you. Okay, okay, okay. Well, also. well, look, yeah, there's a funny story about it. Look, I played with her for two years. And, uh, and sure, we did Soul Train. And I'm up there looking like a complete clown, most likely. I haven't seen that for years, but I tell you what, as a par- as a parent of a division one basketball player, who's now a pro in Germany, I used that to, uh, for a great benefit. He was, he played, my son Keith played at LSU and mm-hmm. uh, he was live on national TV his junior year, or, uh, maybe 
against Texas A&M on ESPN1. And he had a pretty rough game. And we're back at the hotel, the Cook Hotel on LSU campus, and he's just bumming. He's really down. And I said, you know what? I'm going to change your mood right now. Go to YouTube and look up Sheena Easton strut <laughs> and Sheena Easton sugar walls featuring me looking like a complete idiot. And so he looked at his dad just sort of undulating around with sunglasses on. And it just he just fell out and his mood changed just like I predicted. And so, you know what, whatever works to help your kids get through the tough times, my clownish appearances in Sheena videos worked well. I assure you that he's exaggerating, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen. Anyway. You had another son, Bruce. Can I say who's on the I forgot we're still in the intro. Yeah, who's on the show? (laughs) Hold on. (laughs) (laughs) Not everyone played with Sheena Easton. Hold on a second. We we didn't even talk about his work with uh, Jack D. Jeanette and uh, my high school mate, Krista McBride. Yes, Philadelphia Uh, schoolmates, yes. Yeah, not to mention, um, you know, your your musicianship, your DNA is all over our favorites by Bonnie Raitt, uh, Don Henley, so many uh, projects. This intro is going to be forever, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, he played with Squeeze. What? Yep. When? I don't know. I saw well, it on Wikipedia. Just to be accurate, I played on one, I played on one of their records, a great record of Walk a Straight Line. It's a oh, wow. Be- beautiful, be- you know that one? No, it's it's a great, uh, not a hit, but it's a beautiful song. Kind what of a album is it? Song. Squeeze head. What album is it on? It's uh, called Play. Okay, from the it's er- on play. early okay. mid nineties, uh, and I played accordion. Yeah, on that. I'm sorry. So right. All right. Yeah. So, so let say- me just say the two words so we can start the episode. <laughs> Bruce Hornsby, the Quest Love Supreme. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> okay. yeah, we yeah we often uh, fall in the rabbit holes even before we get the name of the artist. Yeah. Out. <laughs> who ca- who cares? It's fine. I. I, yes. I Bruce Hornsby, Easton veteran. So right now you're celebrating the release of your 22nd record, correct? Uh, Yes, that's that's true, sir. So so without my knowledge of your 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 deadhead years, can I can I assume that the fact that you have uh, about I believe it is 26 live albums, that's the lesson that you learned from playing with the Grateful Dead. <laughs> well, okay, people always ask me what how did playing with the dead change your musicianship, change your approach, etc. I was always an improvising musician. I went to school, I was one of those music school geeks. I started off at Berkeley for two semesters, but then I went to University of Miami, Suntan U, known for, to a lot of people, <laughs> for your paid vacation for rich northern kids, uh northern white kids. Anyway, uh I came out with that background. And so the improvisational aspect of the dead was not anything that was sort of epiphanal for me, epiphanic. It was, what, what I got out of them mostly uh, was inspiration on the songwriting level. People don't realize that they have fully 50 truly great songs. Uh, half of them sound like they could have been written 100 years ago or plus old folk music, a deep well of uh of uh, influence there so so i, I love them i miss garcia he was quite a guy he, he was a rock and you were there during the garcia years oh yes the last spot i played with them just for uh 20 months or so i played about 100 shows with them from eight from yeah. 1990 to 92 we'd opened for them before that okay oh so you played the 92 okay yeah but then i, I sit I, in with them when they were geographically close to me up through 95 up right up to his death 
Okay. So. Yeah, I went to one Garcia show, I think in Houston, when uh, Branford Marcellus was sitting yeah. with him. Yes, my guy. Yes, Branford. Yeah. Uh, and I played together with the dead quite often. Uh, it's His birthday's coming up here pretty soon, fellas, so maybe you should shout his ass out. Yeah. Shout out to <laughs> Are you on uh without a net the the dead live? No, that's Brantford's on that. Um Right. Okay, to to, to uh respond to the 26 live albums to which you're referring uh that's albums. I mean, they're just available online. There're no there's no CDs made of those. But frankly, we're like a lot of bands. I write the songs we record the songs and then we learn how to play the songs. So consequently <laughs> the live thing expands everything that we started with on the original record. And so, so quite often live is the best way to hear us because it's very loose. It's very free. Uh, right. Branford sits in with us quite often because he knows that we're winging it like crazy because I don't know what I'm going to do. So if I don't know what I'm going to do the band guys definitely don't. And it makes it great fun. Is it, is there a pressure for you to make, a memory each and every night knowing that some of these fans will follow you like there there to me is no more loyal fan base than you know anything associated with the dead or yeah, six that, degrees within it so yeah that's how, how did that affect your actual the way that you put on shows i think i probably started taking it a little more out than i had been doing you know, I was always improvising, but I got a lot freer, much to the chagrin of a lot of my fans. You know, when you come out having these big hit radio songs, you acquire an audience that I call sort of a soft core one. People who are only there to hear the songs they know. Only for the hit, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so I was never that guy. So I've it's been my self-appointed job to piss those people off for many a year. <laughs> and, and And so... I've been nasty letters abound in my world for, for 32 years now. Wait, I've you're saying that you've gone shows without playing Modern Rain or, or The Way It Is? or? Yeah, well, not many. I've, been, I've become a lot more kind about it in my senescence here in my 60s. But I, there have been shows. But the only times that I didn't do that was when I felt the audience was so jacked, so responsive, so deeply involved in what we were doing without playing those old war horses that I could get away with it. And it wasn't a problem. Of course, I'd still get a couple of nasty letters from people who, again, <laughs> are soft core fans and they would just come to hear those five or six songs that, that they know. But uh, so, yeah, uh, uh, now it's really gotten bad because my last two records have really gone. I'm, I'm a modern classical music devotee. And so that astringent, atonal, chromatic, dodecophonic sound has uh, been filtering into my music uh, much to many fans chagrin i, I apologize to them I, I, that is actually I, the i that is the first time we've ever heard the word dodecophonic used on quest love supreme <laughs> yeah. and that is amazing and not the i'm happy to be a first to give you all a first here yeah i saw you play once downtown and uh there was a lot of feedback and it was in the key of f so we played remember the, this. So they played everything in the key of F. We played was, to the feedback, and, yeah. and for that, <laughs> yeah. it was fucking hilarious because every song was just in F, no matter what 
in what range <laughs> so of his voice it was. They took everything into F. And so like, cause it kept on feeding back. And so like, so as not to be atonal, they played everything in F and it was hilarious. And well, look, if you're a musician of any worth, you should be able to transpose instantly. If you can't, you're not going to play with me. And so... Uh, I say so nothing, I, Steve. What's that? <laughs> Bruce, nothing. We, Go ahead, we continue. Share, we share a guitar player. Doug, Doug Derryberry, who used to be a noisemaker many years ago, is a Sesame Street's guitar player. So, well, not, not that many years ago. Doug, uh, Doug was with me for 15 years and... Uh, I made a change about maybe six, five or six years ago, but Doug is a great asset, a great utilitarian, sort of an orchestral guitar player. Exactly. It's a great, uh, it's a great New York uh, guitar player named John Leventhal, most well known for the Sean Colvin great yeah. records. And uh, Leventhal had played on my sixth record, Spirit Trail, in '98, and I wanted somebody to to give me a Leventhalian sound and so i got doug and he did a a great job for me i started hearing another sound in my head so alas i, I made a change but i love doug and he did a great job for us like i say for 15 years awesome so your musical roots i know that you started out in virginia what what city were you born in i was born in richmond and uh ah. i lit i grew up in williamsburg 50 miles down the road and i still this is where i am now i moved back after 10 years in in la I oh, moved wow. back back in uh, 1990, so I've been here for back here for 30 years, and we're in I my studio. <laughs> yeah, you can have that shit. I, <laughs> I went not, there once. They took us on a trip there, like third grade one time, and like that was it. No, oh, I'm God, not I feeling, did a dreaded root yeah. show there. Or <laughs> or yeah. get this, Fonte the the one we did like 106 in Park live. Uh oh. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> no so really how did you, how did you go over? How did the the, the, well, the garden? See, push, our, push. our song "Break You Off" went nice for about four minutes, and then the rest of the show was like, uh, okay, they're just they're just out there looking <laughs> at you. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, "Where's Mr. Cheeks at?" Uh, we're done. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, I can relate. I've been not there. Fun. What about not fun. Uh, what about Colonial Williams uh, Williamsburg? They still. <laughs> Well, we made it our self-appointed job as local townies to pelt tourists and local College of Women Mary students with water balloons. And uh, <laughs> so we would ride through town and just wear an ass out. Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> yeah, our karma was probably not so good then. Hopefully improved. But uh, we actually got stopped by the cops and taken to the, cop the police station our senior year in high school, uh, some young, well-appointed young College of Women Mary grad student, uh, we just pelted him, and he flagged the cops down, and we were through. So that's, but yeah, that was as exciting as it got in the little ass town of Williamsburg, which I love. Obviously, I moved back here, but uh, yes, Williamsburg is my town. Yeah. The yeah. Bruce Hornsby got Karen. Okay. Yeah, I'm right down the street. Yeah, I'm I'm in North North Carolina, uh, born and raised. So where? Familiar. Where, where? I'm in Raleigh. And I saw your son. He went to Asheville, right? He went to Yes, you did. Yes, yeah, okay. he was in the mountains. <laughs> yes. So. You saw him play NC State. Maybe. Yeah, man. Oh, yeah, yeah, he he, sure. he put 23 on NC State. And then they recruited him. Mark Gottfried recruited him, but he picked LSU and it worked out great for him. But yeah, Raleigh's up. a a good old town. We like playing that museum, the outdoor 
yeah, 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 the museum. one, yeah, the art museum. Uh huh. Yeah, it's nice. Yep. It's yeah, really nice. And you know, Brantford lives in Durham. Yeah, man, Brantford. So Brantford, he actually, I'm, I graduated from North Carolina Central, and Brantford yes, taught there. He was yes, there, I like, know. the artist in residence for years, and uh, okay. he's just super cool dude, man. Yeah, the best. He's he he's also a fellow prankster with me, so I could talk about that, but I'll. I, I won't do it because he may not approve. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first musical memory? Well, it's not a memory. When someone's recorded you at age, at age three or four, you know, you don't, at least I don't remember that. But since the tape's around, then mm -hmm. you feel like you remembered it. There's a tape of me singing Hound Dog at age about three and a half or four. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Crocking all the time, you know, all that business. Uh, and some other songs, too. With the Wind and the Rain in Her Hair by Pat Boone. Our parents were turning us on to this stuff. So, yeah, uh, sadly, uh, alas, I probably heard Pat Boone's uh, Tutti Frutti and not Little Richard. And not you know, Little Richard. As, as, <laughs> as sad as that sounds, I, that's, that's, that was what was happening in my house. But were, yeah, Did you have other ahead. siblings or was it just you? Yes, I'm the emotionally disturbed middle child. And, uh, <laughs> so, so uh, yes, I have an older brother and a younger brother. And uh, I, it's, it's interesting. Since I was in the middle, I was really close with each of them. And they were friendly uh, always, but not like, not, not like a relationship that I had with each of them. My older brother was the original deadhead in our family, Bobby Hornsby. And I used, in my freshman year of college, I was little Brucey playing Fender Rhodes and singing lead in a dead cover band called Bobby Hightest and the Octane Kids. So <laughs> that was Bobby Hornsby. And my younger brother ended up writing a lot of songs with me later in. The aforementioned Mandolin Rain is a co-write with my younger brother, John, Valley yeah. Road, school about uh, a song about a young girl who gets knocked up, as they used to say, put in the family way, and they send her away to the school for unwed mothers. A, a, a wild, a strange way to have a, a hit, the top five song, that one. So he, <laughs> yeah, so he wrote that with me. He wrote songs for several years, but now he's out of it. But yeah, they're, uh, I was, I was, the, I'm the middle guy, the middle, middle student. I was a jock as a kid, though. I was uh, into music a little bit, but I mostly wanted to hoop. Yeah, I was going to say your, your relationship with basketball. I'm, I'm a Philadelphian, so yeah, um, it has been noted how your involvement uh in the life of Allen Iverson uh <laughs> some could say literally saved his life at the time it's, it's too I'm just curious like what was it about him because the thing is, is that I'm not one I'm not a sports guy but I'm still trying to understand the mentality of college sports fans and how they see that just as important as professional sports and but what was it at the time <clears throat> that made you want to get involved in his situation well, I think addressing first the college versus pro thing, you've got a whole lot of people, for instance, in the southern part of the United States where, say, in basketball, there are only – only, outside of Florida, there's only the Atlanta Hawks and the New Orleans Pelicans. So for most – for this vast area, college sports is king. That's one reason why the SEC, I think, is so huge yeah. because and, they're and the, the only game in yeah. – and the ACC, too. The, yeah. So those are the only games in town. Uh, and after, having said that, what what did you just ask me other than that? What, well, what made you personally get involved uh, with Allen Iverson's situation? Oh, okay. Okay. So, well, Chuck, as we call him, Bubba Chuck. That was Bubba his Chuck, yeah. 
Well, Chuck was his name uh, in locally, at least in the hood of Hampton. When they when he got sent to jail, graffiti all over Hampton said "Free Chuck." I just got chills thinking of going <laughs> down and seeing all this because he was a beloved figure even as a kid. People just knew he was special. There's an AAU program in our area, legendary program called the Boo Williams League, Boo Williams mm-hmm. Summer League. And uh, Chuck was a star in that. And then he played at Bethel High School and he led his team. He was a fantastic football player, too. He was just a special athlete. He got, he got over 200 offers uh, in football as well. And so, so he was just as good at football as he was in basketball. Well, right? it's arguable. Who can say? He was just fantastic at both. So, you know, right. what do you say? Okay. Greater, greater. He was just great in both. Um, what was his position in football? He was a quarterback. Okay. Yeah. And he was so fast. And he had all that juke, all those, all those changes of direction. You know, he'd go this way and then go the, you know, just, he was crossing people over, over on, on oh. the football field. <laughs> okay. So the, the story goes that. I went to see him play at Fort Eustis. We have a, it's a very great military presence, huge military presence in our area. And one of the bases is Fort Eustis. They had a Christmas tournament. Chuck was playing. Bethel High School was playing. So I went to see the game. And Ann Iverson, his mom, came up to me and, oh, I don't know, asked me to sign something. And so I told him, yeah, yeah, we loved, we loved Chuck, et cetera. And uh, so then after his junior year where he led – his team to the state championship in football and then in basketball. He was in a bowling alley in Pocosin, Virginia, a little, an area of Newport news or Hampton, I guess. And uh, well, a, a brawl broke out and he and a bunch of others uh, were arrested for brawling in a bowling alley and also maiming by mob. So he, he and three or four of his friends were, were convicted and sent to jail. And I thought it was a travesty, a miscarriage of justice. So we're, I'm proud to say that we in Virginia elected the first black governor in America, Doug Wilder. And yeah. he was, and he was uh, the governor then. And I had done some work for him, some uh, uh, events for him. So I started lobbying him through his chief of staff, who's a friend of mine. And I don't know, I was just one of many probably uh, to do this. But 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 Wilder around Christmas time of say ninety two, uh, Wilder Doug Wilder uh, mm-hmm. pardoned Allen. Now he should have pardoned everybody. And about two weeks later, the hubbub was so intense that finally he did let everybody go, so as not to show favoritism to the local favorite son, Killer Hooper. You know, Killer Jock. So about two months later, I get a call out of the blue from his high school coach, a guy named Mike Bailey, and he says. Hey, Bruce, uh, Alan knows about what you did for. Oh, yet also, I had just become friends with our mutual guy, Spike Lee. Spike, yeah. And so Spike and I, the first thing I did with Spike in 92, he made a video for for me. Brantford was in it because he played on the record. uh, A song about the first interracial romance in my town of Williamsburg and all the consternation it caused with the local sort of conservative government crowd. Uh, anyway, we're in, we're in editing. And I told him about Chuck and, uh, Oh, that's right. I had told him earlier about that. Anyway, I forget the exact timeline, but, uh, this guy calls me. And so, so I, I had gotten spike when, when, when Chuck was in jail, I said, spike, you know, you know, this kid I told you about, well, now he's in jail. And spike said, yes, I've seen it on ESPN. I know all about it. I said, will you do me a favor and send him just some care package from Spike Lee? It might pick him up when he's at the city farm in Newport News. And so Spike did that. 
Anyway, this guy calls and says, well, Alan knows what you've done, what you've done, and, and he'd like to thank you. I said, well, you guys come up and we'll play some ball. And he said, well, that's what he would like to do. So we ended up doing that and uh, becoming friends through that uh, for, for, uh, for forever. Wow. Now, is there any truth to the rumor that you... Oh, oh no. Oh, God, okay. <laughs> that you beat Alan Iverson in the game with one-on-one? It's not just one game. It was three. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, <hey. laughs> but, you know... But, 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 <laughs> I'm just setting the record straight. I don't need to talk shit. I don't care about living, you know, about making that some moment. I never bring it up. I never talk about it. But look, it's out. But well, you won't deny it, though, will you? Well, it, 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 <laughs> look, it just happened. Maybe I caught him rusty because he had obviously not been playing a whole lot of ball for the past four months. But I had one of those days where I just couldn't miss. You know, I just was uh, just uh, just net just netting my ass off and. and <laughs> And we were playing a game. Maybe he was not aware of this game. It's perfect for him, really. It helps the the, the smaller guy, and he's a little small, shorter than me. Right. Uh, it's uh, it's the way the pros play. You start at the top of the key, and you can either pick a two dribble or three dribble maximum, which basically means the big guy can't just back in, back in, back into the rack and throw some little last land, a pitiful land hook, and and do that all the time. So you got to make a move. You got to you know you got to commit and shoot the ball. So that's that's what we played. Of course, he dunked on my head about five times. I mean, you know, <laughs> okay. he's a free, he was a freaky athlete. Anyway, there are lots of witnesses, and I could name them all for you. So, including <laughs> including his high school coach. But you know what? Hell with it. I, I don't care. I love I love Chuck, and uh, you know, but maybe maybe he let me. I you'd have to ask him. Okay. Yeah. There's um. There's a. Uh... <laughs> There's a friend of Pharrell's who, um, I guess, went to high school with uh, I, with Alan, and um, like one night they were at a party for the Neptunes, and you know it was like they were in a nightclub, and you know the guy was trying to bring up like old high school times, and you know Alan was like, oh yeah, way back in the day, like really not trying to talk basketball when you're in a nightclub situation. Well. This guy like insists like whatever high school game they played like oh he, boy he oh, had yeah. walked or something or like he he did some violation I don't know what happened but the next thing I know Pharrell tells me tells me that this guy grabs his basketball and he's outside in the parking lot and it's pouring down rain <laughs> and he's playing against Allen Iverson's Rolls Royce. Like he's just in front of the Rolls Royce, like trying to cross, as if that Rolls Royce is Allen Iverson, like for no reason at all. Just <laughs> oh, he was out there alone playing a car. He's out there alone, just like <laughs> playing a car, <laughs> playing a car, trying to cross the Rolls Royce, like crossing over a car. It was parked. Like Allen was nowhere. You know, it was just that is one of those crazy moments. That's sad, really. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. Um, so, for you, what was your what was the moment that really drew you into your music career right now? Like, well, what, what was the moment that made me well, say, I mean, okay, as, I, as I, younger. I, yeah, exactly. That made me say, okay, the hell with the standard uh, routine. I'm casting my light with the Musos. That moment you're saying, so you're asking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I went to one year of real college. I was a bit of a school hopper. I went to three colleges, university of Richmond, the one sort of lost year. That made and then Berkeley and Miami, so that was a year that made me realize, okay, 
this this is what I need to do. But I was such a late starter because I had been a jock as a kid, and that's what I cared about. But I started playing piano in 11th grade, and uh, so kind of late, wow. stage 17. Wait, you started playing piano in 11th grade? Yeah, yeah. I had a lot of catching up to do. And Started? Uh, yes, started. How? I'm, well, that's just freakish. Okay, what? Well, okay, so how? Because, uh, I mean, you're well, really good, so I would just think that. <laughs> yeah, to be, have started that late. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> well, look, it's all, about, it's all about putting in the time. As anyone knows, as you know, uh, I, when I, once I got into it, I got deeply involved. And when I went to college, I practiced for several years for, from five to eight hours every day. So if you're willing to do that every day, Christmas Day, New Year's Day, then you're going to catch up a little bit. Although... I do feel like I love classical music, mm-hmm. but my technique, because I was such a late starter, it, it's, it's commonly said that if you want to be a classical virtuoso or a concert pianist, you have to start at age three, four, five, six, you know, no, late, no later than that, because oh. the demands are so intense. And I really feel that, to be honest, I'm always going, man, bitch, you sorry ass, you know, to myself. <laughs> and, 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 and so... So that's that's a regret, but hey, everyone's life path is different. I was just a guy who liked liked playing sports first, and so got into this later. So yes, but I got deeply into it and went to music school and and got a lot out of that too. So that so that's my story. Just started started late, but couldn't stop. I just I just had to do it at all times. Why, why'd you leave Berkeley? Uh, I left Berkeley because I wanted to practice four hours a day, and they had a limited number of practice rooms. So if you wanted to practice four hours a day, you had to wait about six and a half hours to do that because they'd kick you out. There was a good was a line, a sign-up sheet in the line. They'd kick you out after two hours for, you know, for good reason, I guess, because there's got a lot of people Other waiting. People. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So, and I also, since I was late to start, I felt I needed to, I'd, I'd amassed all this information, you know, this theoretical knowledge at Berkeley, heart, taking harmony, et cetera. And I thought I needed some time to really, really assimilate and deal with this and really ingest it. So I lived in a farmhouse outside of Williamsburg, and that was when I started my eight hours, hours a day regimen. I played this little cocktail piano bar at, at night to make a buck and shed on this old upright, and then I went to Miami from there. Were you so, learning just by ear, or were you reading at that time? Well, I started playing by ear because it came fairly naturally to me. I started because of two, two guys. My older brother uh, went to New England prep school, and we were just mm-hmm. local Virginia hoopals who listened to the Top 40 station and the Soul Station. We didn't get the underground stuff, you know, the, the, the stations where back then you could hear Miles Davis next to Hendrix, mm-hmm. next to Joni Mitchell, you know, whatever. And, uh, and, and so, so he turned me on to, I know this sounds crazy to think that this could be sort of underground, but Elton John's second record, Tumbleweed Connection, his least most, the, the one record he probably almost ever made that had no hit on it. It's one mm-hmm. of the best ones. It's a deep, beautiful record, and it got me into playing. And then he turned me on to Joe Cocker, Mad Dogs and Englishman, with the great Leon Russell playing piano. Yes. So Leon and Elton, Leon's a soul man. He came straight out of, you guys familiar with Kojic, Church of God in Christ? Oh, based in yes, Memphis. I'm very it's much deep. So deep gospel music uh, roots. I mean, it's just 
the, the music that comes out of there. Like you hear those old Sam's cooking the soul stirrers records, all that stuff that Leon played that go, all that stuff. You're hearing that in the background of where Sam's cooking the soul stirrers are singing that killer gospel. Quartet, that's where yeah. that came. Yeah, that's right. Gospel. That's right. Gospel quartets. And so between Elton and Leon, I, I was hooked. And so I was, I was learning those by ear, but my mom, see, my grandfather was a musician for a living in Richmond and he was the supervisor of music in the public schools, the pubic school system. And then, uh, he, uh, was also the, uh, the, the, the theater organist at the local mosque. If you went to the state JC's convention, you, you'd be the guy over in the corner playing LS Turkey in the straw or some old freaking <laughs> minstrel shit. But uh, so anyway, uh, she, my mom looked at me and she thought my hands just looked terrible. I was probably playing like this. And she said, you know what, you, you may be sounding okay, but you look rough. You got to start taking lessons. And so then I started to learn to read and learn sort of the, the jazz language, the two fives, et cetera, all the, uh, the color tones and all that. So that my mom was good for me. And so uh, that's how that happened. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling. Uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. <laughs> Real quick, what year were you at Berkeley? And were there any other notable students that were there at the time that was in the year that you went? Yeah, well, it, it, I've always heard it's a it's a badge of dishonor to actually graduate from Berkeley because yep, I've heard that too. You only go for a little bit. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. If, if you're, Does that mean you ain't getting a gig? Yeah, that you don't have a gig. <laughs> That's exactly. right. That, that means you're sad. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, okay, I went to, for summer and fall of '74. But I was in the accelerated program, so I crammed two years into two semesters. Uh, and let me see, anybody who was there who really emerged. Pat Metheny was there, but he had come from Miami. He had been a student at Miami, but he was so bad, he became a teacher, like, instantly. Mm-hmm. And But he was playing with Gary Burton when I was at Berkeley. And so I oh, saw an amazing wow. concert at the Sanders Theater in Harvard with Keith Jarrett opening on solo uh-huh. piano imagine right. that and then gary burton's great quartet with pad and mick goodrick and maybe bob moses so it was a fertile scene in boston you know they had the jazz workshop in paul's mall you right. could go i would go i had enough money to go see here say bill evans or horace silver one of the weeknights but i would go and listen through the the, the wall on boylston avenue boylston street uh, just to hear more. So it was amazing to be able to hear all these people, uh, all, all these legends, Cannonball, Adderley, Miles, on and on and on. Wow. Was it, how heavy was the competition there? Because I know, especially now, like if we're anywhere near that campus in Boston, like, or at least this, the musicians I see now looking on YouTube or whatever, I feel like there's such a, not a cutthroat, but a need to out floss each other in, in, in terms of like, you know, overplay and yeah, yeah. play everything. Is, is that the story of Berkeley? Just like, yeah, try to. Yeah. I, I really wasn't good enough to be perfectly honest with you. I really wasn't good enough to really emerge into the scene where I was hearing the great guys. I was fairly mid-level. And uh, so I don't remember. And I also don't remember anyone emerging to have a great career. Now, when I went to Miami, that's different. Okay. When I was at Miami, it was sort of the latter stages of the golden era of University of Miami. Right when I hit, right when I got there, Pat, uh, yeah, Pat had been there. Jocko had been teaching there. Jocko Pastorius. Uh, wow. Oh, he held a job. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it was yeah. personal. It was private lessons. I'm sure it was loose. Okay. Hey, I can't, hey, I can't make it today. Listen to, you know, that, that kind of thing. But, <laughs> The Dixie Dregs, you guys know who they, those guys were? Uh, mm. Steve Morse, sort mm. of like 
I don't know, like uh, virtuosic rock. rock and roll bluegrass or something. Steve Morse was a crazy, the, the, the virtuosity level was high. Uh, but then uh, Carmen Lundy, Rob Watson, but he's known as Bobby Watson now, uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, okay. and, and and Carmen's uh, little brother, Kurt Lundy. I played in Carmen's band. That was sort of a rite of passage. If you were emerging as one of the better players in the hierarchy of the school, you got to play in Carmen Lundy's band. You guys know Carmen, right? You guys know? I know Carmen Lundy. Yeah, yeah. okay. So she's had a nice career as a jazz singer. Uh, and uh, yeah, Bobby Watson, Carmen, Pat, well, Pat Matheny, of course. Uh, and so you Pat's were looking at a more serious jazz sort of I, road or just yeah, you were yeah. going for the road, whatever it took you? Well, I was just going with the inspiration, but it was pretty telltale at that time. I would go to the record store and I'd buy an Ornette Coleman record and a Joni Mitchell record. And I'd always mm -hmm. find myself listening to the Joni Mitchell record more. You know, I'd, I'd get a Roberta Flack record and a Hubert Laws record, say, and uh, the the flute player. Yeah, I'm, and yeah. so so Family, I, so, no record. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's fantastic. And so, but I always I I thought to myself, well, I think my I really like this jazz music. It's a it's a great intellectual pursuit, but I I think my heart was in 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 songs in songs with words. And so when I got out of Miami, we put together a band up in Virginia and started down the long road. Eight years later, I got signed to RCA Records at age 30. So it was wow. you know, overnight Wait, let's, back that, yeah. let's back that up six years. Yeah. 82, you you and you uh, joined Ambrosia. Um, no, no, but I didn't. That's a, that's a fallacy on Wikipedia, whatever. Oh, uh, so you had nothing to do with Ambrosia? No, no, no uh, they, they were great friends of mine. Okay, I was discovered our, the, the aforementioned band we put together in Virginia after Miami, after I graduated, we were playing around the local area and we were, we're playing bars and lounges where you're, you know, you're expected to play shake your booty and brick house and, and all that <laughs> stuff. So we gradually acquired an audience who would come to these lounges to hear my songs. So we were big fans of Mike McDonald of the Doobie brothers. Yes. And so, so they were coming through town and, uh, so we knew where they were staying because the same people that booked the big concerts at Hampton Coliseum booked our little shit-ass gigs at the, at the Steak and Ale. So we walked in. My drummer and I were both sort of big guys. I'm a big, bony-ass guy, but my drummer's a big, strong guy. And we walked in and found Mike McDonald in the lobby. We went up to him and said, hey, Mike, we're the baddest motherfuckers in this town. And we're, <laughs> we're playing right over here. And you should come here. So he, he says, well, I, I will if I can. I'm going to the movies. But So sure enough, he came. We're going to the movies right now. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone could do a Mike McDonald impression. Well, no one could do it. Yeah. Yeah. We've had him on the show. We, we actually had him. Uh, like he was doing an impression ago. of himself. That was what was happening. <laughs> well, he's a beautiful guy, as you know. He's just the sweetest person. So self-effacing, humble. Uh, anyway, he came, and we were just raging at it. And he invited us over to the... Long story short, he kind of he sort of discovered us and helped us meet some people in L.A. And that's what got me out to L.A. Uh, about a year and a half later, we a, a lot of us moved to California. Did you ever end up working with Michael McDonald after that on projects or anything? 
No, but our claim to fame was that Mike McDonald and the, well, the Doobie Brothers were playing some PBS special and uh, live thing, and he was wearing a Bruce Hornsby band T-shirt. <laughs> wow. And so that was, of course, that was a huge thing for us. We thought that was beautiful. We, we slept on his floor for 10 nights, my drummer, John Molo, and I. And at that time, he was singing on everybody's record under the L.A. Sun. And uh, so he would take our admittedly me very mediocre demo tape around and try to turn people onto it and that but to no avail again years later i got signed oh but yeah so, right this is Back from up. moving to la what year did you move to la 1980 yeah okay graduated 77 from um and then two and a half years around the local scene from virginia beach to richmond with williamsburg in the middle and then moved to uh to la well, obviously, I know what prompted the move to L.A. Oh, to, oh but, to but you know, it, well, but. well, we you, you got we got on this because you asked me about Ambrosia. So, yes. OK, so the opening act for the Doobie Brothers in the, on that tour was Ambrosia. Mm -hmm. And so they came to the gig, too, and we became friends with them. And when we we went to L.A. later that summer, we slept on some of those guys floors. And so they became friends w with us. And then about 83, 82, 83, 84, they had made a record called Rhode Island. And uh, it was a very adventurous sort of prog rock record because a lot of everyone knows the hits, Make a Wish Baby. And, yeah, Biggest Part that. of Me, How yeah, Much I Feel. How Much okay. I Feel, yeah. But really their their heart lay in, in the uh, the more progressive, go 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 that kind of thing. They're filler, and, yes, they do a lot And, and I, I liked that too. So... They made a record called Rhode Island, and uh, I wasn't on it, but I wasn't doing much then. And they said, hey, why don't you come be in a video? So now I'm outing myself again. I know that I know what you're up to here, because <laughs> now you're, you're making me admit to another laughable performance on a video that is, is unfortunately out in the world. But, you know, what do I care? I, I look hilarious again. So you start want, off as a video <laughs> extra. I see now. Okay. I start. I started off as a video pitiful, <laughs> <laughs> and so that's all I did with him. I was just in that video. The Rhode Island record didn't really do much commercially, and so they kind of broke up the band. And uh, but right around that time, I was starting to get my own thing going, and soon enough, I finally got my chance. So what was what was pounding the pavement like in Los Angeles? <laughs> Between 1980 and 86, when you finally got your deal, like well, how, you had, what was, yeah. what was the, the, the steps of, not the steps of heartbreak, but <laughs> I mean, what was it like back then? Well, you, you have, you'll, I'll have to set the scene by remembering the pop music trend of the time. The early 80s were just chock-a-block with new wave music guys in skinny ties and the kind of haircut, buzz, whatever they had, groups you, like... You had a piano of, tie, didn't you? Well, I didn't have, I didn't have any of that. I, <laughs> I looked just like some schmendrick who, you know, sold, sold coffee somewhere. I mean, I, I just was totally not this... The pictures of me are pretty funny. Well, my pictures of me now are probably pretty funny too. But anyway, uh, that... that uh, so I was really, I'm trying to paint the picture that I was really a fish out of water stylistically. You know, for the, I was wrong for the times. But then 
maybe I kind of caught a wave in this way. Maybe that's why I got signed. I don't think about it much. But in 85, the, the pop trends tended to, were, st- were starting to move away from, from this uh, sort of Brit pop new wave thing. And LA had its own new wave uh, uh, groups like X and the Blasters. Right. But it started moving into more of an Americana, you know, Bruce Springsteen, John Bellencamp, Tom mm-hmm. Petty thing. So my music was sort of tangentially related to that stylistically. And so maybe that, but I was playing all this piano. And so it was a little different. And I don't know. I've got, I'm, I'm proud to say the guy who signed me was the rhythm guitar player for the zombies back in the 60s. So oh, a wow. beautiful, oh, just okay. the, the best British man, Paul Atkinson, with that great resume. And uh, he just, and I tell this to people all the time, the least, com- as far as sort of a, a, t- a cautionary tale of what not to do, the, the least commercial tape I ever made was the one that got me signed. And the, the, the one that was the truest to my sort of artistic heart at the time. I'm just soloing on piano, just stuff that's not done. And Paul Atkinson basically couldn't take the, the tape out of his car. So you're just trying to move somebody in a deep way. And that's what this tape did. It was my sort of screw you to the mainstream record business. I thought it was going to come out in some small label like Wyndham Hill or something. But <laughs> <laughs> you laugh. Okay. I, I get it. It's kind of uh, sorry. It's kind of interesting that Paul Atkinson signed you. Haven't he's from the Zombies, which was a, a keyboard centric band. Yeah, Rod Argent, exactly. Yeah, uh, so he, he yeah. might have had a, a a taste for that. An affinity for a keyboard uh, or a dominated pop. Yeah. So anyway, that's what happened, and then our, we made our first record, and uh, it was a total fluke. The way it is was thought to be a B side. There's lots of stories like this. This is not rare. Uh, uh, Rod Stewart's Maggie May, for instance, one of the right. I- iconic songs. That was thought to be a B-side as well. So you're uh, saying the way it is was kind of an afterthought like here? Well, it was the t- I titled the record that. The record, our first record was called The Way It Is. But again, a song about racism with two, not one, but two improvised piano solos is not the formula for pop radio, you know, <laughs> and so it, at, at all. But it broke on the BBC, BBC Radio 1, broke in England, then throughout Europe, then throughout the rest of the world, and then here. And so I was really lucky, man. I, I broke on a song that, at least for me, ha- felt like it had a little more gravitas than the standard uh, record that you were hearing on hit radio then. And so, yeah, I, was, I, it, it's a, I call it a wonderful accident, a great fluke. I'm, I, I want to ask yeah. you before we even get to the, the the actual crafting of the way it is. I just got to know how did you avoid like '86 would have been a very tempting year, patch wise for you to fall into Yamaha DX7 itis with those like fake road sounds and whatnot. Yeah, I did. I, and I, I you're hated, known I as such a strong piano player. Like, how did you? avoid falling into that because literally every other hit was just peppered with the dx7 fake Rhodes bell sound how did you avoid that (laughs) i thought it was the horror i thought it was horrible i was not i just i didn't want to make that sound and and look it's what i do it's what i did and so again i i made this tape with no regard to that that's why i said it's the least commercial attempted tape that i ever that i made and uh, so 
so it was again it was it was honest and it was maybe fresh and so it's easy to monday morning quarterback to me it was just a, a wonderful accident yeah that was a, a record man the way it is and i don't know you know you said it was a b-side and it was kind of a thing that kind of went off that was one of the first records i remember it kind of being marketed as like a serious song so to speak and yeah. um yeah. just as a kid like i just remember just kind of the bookends of my <laughs> elementary school education like the way it is and we didn't start the fire like i remember uh, okay. my teacher like making us write about those songs like oh interesting know, wow the, okay the way it is like okay so what do you think this is about what do you think mm. you know uh, and yeah and and it just always resonated with me and i think even amir's point about you know, the DX7, that kind of plastic keyboard kind of sound that was hot at the time. Yeah, One of yeah. the things that always stuck out to me that you were actually playing a real piano. And I mean, I was, I mean, God, I was probably like seven, eight, whatever when this came Is out. Is that right? Wow. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. I re but I remember it vividly. And that was just always one of my favorite songs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all the times it's sampled and everything. I mean, it was just, I just always thought that was just a gorgeous song. Well, how about Fast Car by Tracy Chapman? Did you like that one at that time? Uh, yeah, Fast oh, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. That's, that's beautiful. <laughs> I, I love that too. Yeah. But... Do you do you think growing up in Richmond sort of prompted you to craft the song in the way that you did? Because again, I mean, people really weren't, especially with, uh, I mean, barely with with hip hop. I mean, hip hop really wasn't wasn't starting to get in your face for yeah. real, for real until eighty seven, eighty eight. Right. Yeah. So I mean, to even bring up something as topical. Or whatnot? Uh, do you think that's just experience, uh, experiences in Richmond, Virginia, or, or like what prompted that? Well, I think it's just growing up in a small town. Yes, Williamsburg, which is fifty miles from Richmond, so I have small, more of a small town feeling in Williamsburg. And uh, look, it's just uh, it's just based on my upbringing. Uh, I was the only white dude on the basketball team in high school. And that was just the best experience for me. My old teammates are still my hanging pals in town here. We we go out and talk shit and have a laugh and get something to eat <laughs> uh, for years now. It's just beautiful. And so I'll shout out Lawrence Jones, Keith Druitt, P.B. Martin, Alonzo Dandridge, Al Jackson. I could keep naming them. So uh, <laughs> those are my guys. Uh, and so it was a very intense time. I came in just after integration, just after the first couple of years, but there was it was still sort of uh, a fraught scene. Uh, it, it was, it was de de definitely a tension in the air, and uh, but I, I don't know. I embraced it. They embraced me. My my teammates. They my teammates embraced me, and uh, and I, and it's been ever thus. So uh, so I, I I just wrote that song based on my my upbringing in Williamsburg. I was curious to know, what was it like working with Huey Lewis as a producer? Like what was, I mean, we knew him as an artist, but yeah. what was he like kind of behind the boards and in working in that capacity? Well, he, he produced three songs on the record, one of which I changed completely after the record. <laughs> the original version of the record has a band version of this song, The River Runs Low. I, I just thought it wasn't doing the song justice. So I stripped it all down and make it, made it a keyboard uh, vocal. Uh, record. Uh, Huey is one of the great guys and uh, he was he was a big cheerleader for me kind of like Mike McDonald had been 
-hmm. We were making a demo for Epic Records in 84, and Huey had sports at the time, which was just was all everything around the world. And he called up and said, hi, this is Huey Lewis, signed The Range. I was hiding behind the name The Range. We were just The Range then. Uh, RCA asked me to just be Bruce Hornsby, so I compromised on Bruce Hornsby and The Range. But uh, it, it didn't help us. We didn't get signed by Epic, but that just shows you Huey's uh, real intense feeling for what I was doing. And uh, as a producer, we just had a great time in the studio. And we did a song about this old whorehouse, this old whorehouse in, in the countryside in Williamsburg uh, called Down the Road Tonight. And he, he, produced that, he produced that song. He should have cut it himself. He'd have had a hit with it, I think. Yeah, yeah, I could imagine Huey Lewis singing about whole houses. That, that's totally on brand. <laughs> that totally fits. <laughs> it, 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 it t- better than I. Yes, I think you're right. More, more, better suited. With 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 the shock of, or you know, I don't know if it shocks you to have your first single totally come out the out the box um, as a across the board hit. Pressure wise, what was that like uh, to be like? How did your life change as far as the results and, you know, of having that hit single and then suddenly being ubiquitous. Cause yeah. it's not like you had a hit single. I mean, this song is, you know, it's lasting. Yeah. When you said shock, I thought you were going to ask me about my shocker song. My shock no, I didn't get there song. yet. Yeah. I didn't, okay. I didn't get there yet. <laughs> we about every, to get there. Song every, the time, every time I come to and play with you guys, your keyboard player, somebody in your band says, can we play Love Me Still? So I'll get, we'll yeah, get to man. that, which, <laughs> which, which I love. Yeah, I have a good, a, a good story about you and that song on Fallon, but that's, that's uh, yeah. about, about nine years later. Uh, so obviously this is a full dose of you know, pop stardom that's you know, smacking me in the head. And to be honest, I was pretty bad at it, uh, mostly because uh, <laughs> when, you're, when you're making – when you're having success at top 40, at least in America, oh, and absolutely in Europe, it's sometimes even sillier over there with all the lip syncing shows you have to be on. Top but of I the would, pops, top of the pops. Yeah, exactly that, yes. right. You said it, top of the pops and the the like uh, in your in Holland, uh, Germany, yeah. uh, all around. So I would be say I was be in Cleveland because the, the the record company would send me there to sit at a in a at a table signing autographs so mm-hmm. here i am and next to me is tiffany and next to me is debbie gibson on the other side and then there's new kids <laughs> kids on the block and i'm going man what's wrong with this picture it's me and <laughs> so it just didn't fit I, I just i didn't know how to handle it i should have just taken the piss out of it as the brits would say and just made it into a big joke but then people would have got mad at me and i'd you know be drawing stupid things signing different names i i start i just did that everyone does that <laughs> yeah well i did that for a little while but i got s- tired of suffering the slings and arrows of disgruntled fans who would uh oh go oh come on man take it seriously we really right. like you you know and so then you go you know what i'm the dick here and so sorry you're right <laughs> you, you, you're right but but basically it was i was not a good fit for that thing and and so the second record we made was very much of a piece with the first record, stylistically. I wanted to cement this sound, which was basically a Lynn drum machine, piano, <laughs> uh, an OBX or Juno pad, 
boom, bo- uh, vocals, boom. Mm-hmm. And so I did this again for that reason. And then I instantly started getting letters from fans. Well, how dare you change? Mm. And I thought to myself, well, you know what, motherfucker, you haven't seen anything yet. You know, <laughs> you, you just, just wait. And so then I started taking it out. And my third record, I had Wayne Shorter on the record and, and Bela Fleck and, uh, Oh, Charlie, Char- Hayden. Charlie Hayden. Wow, way to go. Uh, and so then the letters really started coming. Uh, but but I so I just never looked back because it's- I never I never trusted hit radio anyway. I knew it was sort of ephemeral and not going to be around for me because I uh, again, my the hit off the second record was the song, this aforementioned song, Valley Road. Yeah, and Valley I'm, Road. Re- I'm really blowing. I'm playing like McCoy Tyner portal harmony in the left hand <laughs> you know just emphatic demonstrative stuff and it's on the radio my my musician friends could not believe what i was getting away with and right. i didn't get away with it for long just those two times way <laughs> the Valley Road. It's, and, it's then, kinda, and then that was it it's kind of weird for me because <laughs> all right so i'm slightly older than fonte so like in my mind though i think even to this day, if I ask myself, I still consider Henley's End of the Innocence <clears throat> kind of like your fourth single. Yeah, like, well, you're, it's the Lynn Drummond and Juno all over again. Yeah, like I still feel like it's, it's I, I never consider that a Don Henley song. Like to me, that's like your song and it's your, and you're not your DNA print. Yeah, yeah I just, yeah. I don't want to sound like a suit. Like the the suit by the A and R guy, but you know you could have you could have just served them up like hot. I, you could have served at least nineteen of them like hotcakes. Like why did you I, okay. put the brakes on it? Like, well, you asked me uh, if I felt pressure uh, to come up with hits or something like that. You asked, and I didn't really answer it, but I can do it now uh, because I had this big hit with a song that no one thought was anything mm-hmm. I, I really felt that no one at the record company felt they knew what a bruce hornsby hit was supposed to sound like so i took mm-hmm. that as total license to be free and uh and and write write songs about uh interracial romances and and uh the girl who got pregnant and uh, on and on so mm-hmm. uh so and, and and then i never got pressured uh, from from RCA, they were really good to me. I think I, I was helped by the fact that the record company was really struggling, and I was the only artist that, at the time, did much for them. So they pretty much left me alone, and I ran with that like crazy. Pat Metheny started playing on my records. That was really wow. special because he was he played so amazingly on my fourth and fifth records, Harbor Lights and Hot House. Man, he just turned it out. Uh, it was so beautiful. Branford played on those, just great. <clears throat> so by then, the record companies just thrown up their hands. Look, I, I, <laughs> I, I was trying to uh, sort of be a purist about it and and just follow my my musical instinct and and the rest be damned. And the rest was kind of damned so, for me. I stopped stopped having hits, but it was okay. So back <laughs> back in the eighties, when the myth of winning best new artist was an actual. Like yes, curse. Curse. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> right. So how did you feel when your name was called? <laughs> I, I frankly was so clueless at the time that I, I didn't start hearing about that curse until after we'd won it. And so uh, so how did I feel? I thought that's well, this is great. 
but you know, I'm a three-time winner, but I'm a ten-time loser. Just so you just set the record straight. It's a pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty, uh, pretty sorry batting average, uh, three for thirteen. Uh, but yeah, uh, how did I feel? I didn't know about it when I heard about it later. I thought, well, whatever happens, I, I'm certainly. It, it seems to me, looking back on my career, that. I had this success, and then I've been trying to rid myself of that audience ever since. Because <laughs> well, wait, I'll, I'll ask this question then: Is is your best new artist? Is it on the mantelpiece or is it a doorstopper? It's neither. It's it's down the bottom shelf of a uh, okay, a little a little little it's, case that 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 houses old scrapbooks and the three Grammys. You know, they they grew with the through the years. You know. My second win was the best bluegrass record. And the third win was uh, with Brantford, a song we did for the Olympics, Barcelona Mona back then. And uh, uh-huh. I think people just voted for us because Kenny G had won for 100 years and they wanted somebody else to win. <laughs> 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 wow. Bruce Hornsby problems. I love it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Not a problem. Um, just, can you just talk funny. about working also with, uh, with Bonnie Raitt? as well because that's your well your DNA on, I can't make you love me yeah look uh, she's my big sister in music uh we we became tight she was a big fan of my early records and subsequent records uh and uh so she uh, I would see her at parties in LA now, after I had hits of course now I'm invited to these slickster parties which was yeah it was fun it was fun with debbie, uh, with debbie Gibson. she's a lovely person she sent me a fan letter one time it was so sweet so i i'm all for debbie gibson she's a talented person too so um, oh, she's um, great she's a good friend uh, yeah. oh that's yeah. fantastic yeah, yeah. So, so, so anyway bonnie uh asked me to play on her her record uh her i guess it was second record she made with don was and right. uh producing and all of a sudden i for a little sp- a little time there, I was sort of Don was his boy. I played on a Seeger record and a Bob Dylan record and a Bonnie Raitt record, all in the, all in when a just a few months period in when I was still lived in LA, my latter days in LA. But that record was just one of those uh, kismet moments. You had this fantastic song, mm-hmm. and I I give Don credit because he didn't dress it up a lot. Uh, we cut the track just a trio. I was playing some little keyboard. Rhodesy, not the X7, mind you, but something, some sort of Rhodesy sound, and then well, they have you over. It worked. Well, yeah, then they have you have you over the, the piano, and he told me later that he kept trying to dress it up, maybe strings, I don't know, maybe a little horn, to, and finally he just he realized he took all the faders down in the mix and just put on those original four elements: drums, bass, electric piano, acoustic piano, and vocal. And it just resonated. So uh, it was very, we might have cut two or three tracks so fast. And look, I consider that to be Bonnie's iconic hit record, the one that will be around forever. So look, how could I not be proud of being a part of that? It was just, and, and, and she's the greatest anyway. She's, hell, she's just send me some crazy lewd uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Twitter thing today. So, you know, so we're, uh, she's, She's a hilarious, great, fan, just beautiful woman. 
Do you think there was something with you guys kind of <clears throat> understand each other because, uh, or I guess kind of the creative kinship that you guys had? Because uh, Bonnie was also someone that didn't really hit pay dirt in her career until much yeah. later, you know, even later than me. Yes. That's yeah. Right. You know what yeah. I mean? Mm-hmm. Do you think that kind of played a role with you guys understanding each other? Yeah, it, it could. Uh, I think basically we have similar musical interests and, uh, uh, she's one of the great singers, one of the great soulful singers. And, uh, uh, I, I like soul music. I'm not one of the great soul singers, but I I I, I love it. And so, uh, so look, I think we just connect personally. She likes to have a laugh, and I do too. That's what's uh, up, man. But, but so anyway, I, it's it's just like I said, she's my big sister. That says it all to me. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segee, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Bruce, That's how does up. how does your mindset change when you're going from like sidemanning Bonnie Raitt to like playing your own shit? Or is it just the same approach? Because like I can't make you love me is like a fairly simple harmonic situation at the end of but the I, day. I changed I changed I know, it though. I'm well, sure that you did that song. So I almost feel like you produced it even though you didn't. I'd love to but. hear it before you sat down to play it, but I heard, I'm sure that's a whole other situation. But well, I don't the chords know. were more standard. You know, I, I'm yeah. a Bill Evans fanatic. You know, I, I love all that. I love that French Impressionism, Harmony, Ravel, uh, whatever. And mm-hmm. uh, so I'm always interested in maybe finding a place for that. I, 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 call, I had to find a, find, figure out a facile way to describe my style because people are always asking me. They always say, well, we can always tell it's you. And why do you think that is? 
<laughs> and I say, well, I think it's a, a sort of a harmonic aesthetic, a way of playing chords. And I call it Bill Evans meets the hymn book because I love mm, the, uh, the, 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 the movement in the left hand of him, of him music, church music. But then I love those beautiful, uh, sexy chords that Bill Evans played too. So, uh, uh, so I don't know. That's, I don't know if I answered your question. No, nah, it's not. Nah, it's that makes yeah. total yeah. sense. Cause it's, totally. even when I hear something, you, you play something like, I really love, um, your take on Nola's thing for she's got to have it. And just <laughs> yes. the way oh, you yeah. play it, it's like, yes. Oh my God, that shit is, <laughs> it's gorgeous, man. So I love it. And, I got it chills like hearing you, you say that kids. Yeah. Right. You know, that's my thing. Uh, if you're going to, do, do that, do a cover. And in that case, mm-hmm. Spike's dad's great original theme, Bill Lee. And I wanted to, you know, make it my own. That's what, why, why do a cover if you're not going to try to spin it and do it and not replicate what's come before? What, what's the point of that? So, yeah, thanks, man. I, I was proud of that. And I did it pretty fast. I gave him three takes. And, and Spike used the right one to me. He used the one I liked the most. <laughs> And so, yeah, that's good. I, but that's, but we've see we since we seem to be going chronologically, then we can go back to, to ninety five where we were talking about Pat Metheny. So, well, wait, and then, just one yeah, more okay. thing, one important part you missed. Okay, you you disbanded the group, and then went to the Grateful Dead. So how <laughs> how was that? Like, hey guys, uh, I'm going over here. You guys take care. Like, what was the well, it wasn't exactly like that. I joined the Dead in 1990, and the range was split apart in 92. But So probably my joining the Dead played a part in that. But mostly, I wanted to move on. Uh, the first record without that band, and I always loved it when people would say, oh, I just missed the old band sound. And I would say to myself, well, what you're referring to as the old band sound is me playing on along with the drum machine and with a synth bass. <laughs> it's basically a virtual one-man show, all those hits that say the range. I mean, the band was great. And just like I've said before, the range live, we'd beat the dog shit out of those records, you know, and just on an on a impact and intensity and, and groove level. The, the guys were great. Molo, Joe Puerta, George Marinelli, uh, on and on, Pete Harris, David Mansfield. So uh, so they wasn't disbanded. But, okay, so I... We got asked to, to open for the dead in 1987, out of the yeah. blue. And as I said before, my older brother was a big deadhead and all his hippie friends up in, up in uh, University of Virginia, they used to drop acid, paint their faces, and go play intramural volleyball. So, <laughs> 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 Sounds like what? high school. I like it. Yeah, good time. <laughs> Life was easier then. I think they just exulted if they ever just hit the ball. <laughs> made, made contact, you know. So... So I had my, my training with them. So I knew a lot of dead music. And so we uh, played a dead song, well, an old traditional song in the dead manner called I Know You Rider in our gigs. I don't know, maybe they heard about that or they were just fans of the first record. And we got a call to open for them in, in Monterey, California. So we did that twice, two days in 87, 88. They asked us again, 89, some more, 90, some more. Every year they'd asked us to play a couple of times. And then... Sadly, their keyboard player, Brent Midland, died of an overdose in the summer of 1990, right after we had played with him. And it was so strange because it was this growing relationship. Garcia had, had before that, played on our third record, played fantastically on two songs. 
and I'm in I'm Seattle, and it's seven eight in the morning. I just heard that Garcia uh, that Brent died in the middle of the night. I'm walking down the street, and some young guy comes up to me and says, "Hey, Bruce, you're going to join the dead." It was so wild. I mean, the rumor mill was already out uh, that that I was going to replace. And I told them, so yes, sure enough, they came out to a gig that we did in Concord, California, just a few days after this, and asked me to join. Garcia and Phil Lesh came out. And uh, and I said, look, guys, if you'd have caught me four years ago before I had this thing going on, I would have said yes and lived happily ever after as mm-hmm. your keyboard player. But I've got this thing going on pretty solidly now, and but I will help you if you need me to. So they asked me to help them through the adjustment period, their new keyboard player, Vince Welnick. And who didn't have a long history with the music. He learned it pretty quickly. He grokked it you know, fairly rapidly. And so I played with them for about two years, uh, 20 months, about 100 shows. And I wouldn't wow. trade that. I wouldn't trade that time with them for anything. It was and beautiful. how happy was RCA with you doing this? Look, I, as I said before, these, the, these execs were really nice. That They allowed me major latitude major leeway you know they gave me long rope with which to hang myself (laughs) 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 on a career level you know but again it wasn't about career i wasn't trying to build this i was just trying to to be moved by music and 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 just just it just sounded like great fun and it really was i mean where else can you play one song for an hour (laughs) yeah i was going to say what was the longest what was the longest show you did Longest show is probably four, four and a half hours, but there's an asterisk, asterisk there because there's some long ass breaks. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe <laughs> you take an hour between the first set and the second set. Sometimes it was very loose. I couldn't believe it. They have the most amazing audience anywhere. You know, this 2015 Fairly Well concerts. They could have played. They had a million, over a million Dude, ticket I almost requests. Went to those. Yeah. Okay. Well, you I, I almost went. I I had a gig okay. that night, the one in San Francisco. I wanted to go to. Yeah, on, I just want to study them from a just from so, outside sociological level. sociological level. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I've been getting into them. I'll say during this Corona break, um, there's some video out. I think uh, Lee Oscar of War sitting in uh, with them, and also uh, Sly and the Family Stones drummer Greg Rico. I didn't realize how many of like my favorite, you know, all like I'm a studio musician junkie. So I didn't realize how many like luminaries that they pull into the fold and, and how they adapt, you know, and then how they just, just instantly fit right in. Ornette sat in with them a few times Mm -hmm. and which was always amazing. (laughs) So opening for the dead, is it, is it a little bit different than like, have you ever met an audience? that you didn't vibe with right away or oh, like of opening co- ab- for the dead how was that well it could be rough because the deadheads can be fairly myopic fairly tunnel tunnel visioned you know they, mm-hmm. they they're, they're really not there to hear you or me <laughs> and, 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 and so so, so you yes, do a jammy they, version of the, the way it is or yeah, like, sure, <laughs> right. sure, sure but we were kind of doing that anyway uh but uh, so yeah it was tough it was really tough when I would, we probably opened for them eight times or so, eight, nine times, and probably only twice did we ever really garner a crowd and have them really be interested in what they were doing. And when, so when I started playing in the band, I, I made it, I was the self-appointed sort of psychologist 
to these poor opening acts who would go out there and just be roundly ignored. You know, <laughs> Dwight Yoakam came out there and he's oh, wow. playing wow. away. And man, I mean, he's a beautiful guy. I just said to him then, I feel you. I, I've been there, you know, so, uh, <laughs> so it can be real tough. Now, some acts like traffic, Steve Winwood or Dylan, Steve, when he would yeah, play with him, or little feet, you know, mm-hmm. the, 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 the dead fans just really embrace a, a certain groups, uh, maybe some reggae groups. If Ziggy Marley was playing, they probably love that sort of related musical styles, I guess. I have a question, Bruce. Sorry, Fonte. Um, oh, it's all good. Go ahead, bro. Uh, so since we're on the dead and that they asked you to, to join did, and I'm not trying to be funny, morbid or disrespectful here, but the three previous keyboard and piano yeah, players right. had, the had, had died. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't know if you're spinal tap. Did that cross your mind? Like, uh, no, back away slowly. It's no, kind of no. Thing? no, I, I left the dead because I came home in the middle of, one of their spring tours they'd have the spring the summer and the fall tours around the u.s Uh, i came home in the middle of the march tour in in 92 i just my wife and i had just had our twin sons uh, russell and keith named for keith jarrett and leon russell and so uh i came home and they didn't know me and uh and i went you know what I don't like this. Um, mm, yeah. I, I need I need to get off the freaking road at least most of the time for a while anyway. Yeah. So that's when I went back to finish the tour and I said, "Hey guys," and Vince, Vince really had the gig solid. He was doing a great job by then. He was doing solid the whole time, but he really seemed to be getting in the groove with it and so knowledgeable about the music. So so that was my my swan song. Although I would sit in with them when they were geographically close to me when he was really struggling in his last year they would actually call me up and say hey we're in charlotte would you would you come down here we'll fly you down here to play because he was having such a hard time it was it was so listless uh, on stage so low energy and they thought i could maybe prod him give him a little cattle prod and, and yeah. uh, get him going so i did that in in charlotte and then in uh, at RFK Stadium, two nights in D.C. And then a month and a half later, month or five weeks later, he was gone. Damn. Wow. Yeah. I, um, I kind of had like a kind of a, a two part question or, along along those lines of just your family and your, you know, your kids and everything. Um, at this point in your career, when we first got on the show, you were saying, uh, you know, you're in the studio working on something. Do you think of yourself more primarily as a player or a singer or a producer? And like kind of what is the hierarchy you know when you sit down to create well when i sit down to create it's all about the song so it's all about being a songwriter is the songwriter uh, first okay yeah and what frankly my last two records that are receiving such great uh, i don't know sort of acclaim around the world it's amazing it's some of the more adventurous strange music i've ever made and all of a sudden i'm being embraced by all these these vaunted venues uh, uh it, it, it i've been taking i've been writing music to some Spike Lee cues. Uh, and because I thought through the years, Spike hired me 
I'd always do a little bit, little things yeah. for him here and there. In fact, no man, Shadowlands. I love that song. Well, I was just <laughs> gonna say because, because Questlove, you, uh, your first acting gig was Bamboozled, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. uh, so, so, we're, <laughs> and yes, Oscar-worthy yeah. performance. Is is that your Sheena Easton moment? Then? Yeah. <laughs> One of them. It's not. No, it isn't because you know yeah. I I knew that it was a satire. It was just. Yeah, the, the way that um, Spike often does these these social experiments. So I'll say that the only part that was like hard to do about that movie was the fact that he purposely will put our trailer five blocks, five city blocks away from where we were shooting. Why? What? Because uh, he wanted us. He at the end, I was like. You 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 did a school days on us. You purposely he wanted you to feel the shame of wanted us to walk the, through yeah. the streets of New York okay. <laughs> in I those clothes yeah. and in blackface oh. like for five blocks. Wow. Yeah, and That's it was yeah, it, like we knew it that this was and you know at the time in two thousand, I was like yo you don't, you don't think it ever is going to get and now it's like we're we're past it like you know yes. it, it's more like a documentary. Then, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. it's like uh, it's like idiocracy. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. It is. So yeah, well, that sounds cold, but it sounds like it has a real purpose. What he made y'all do? Totally. No, it, it had an absolute yeah. purpose in doing it. Yeah, you know, yeah. I enjoyed yeah. it. Um, so, yeah. So what was? How did oh, you two? Was this your? Or you did Clockers first, correct? Okay, my my Spike, uh, I guess resume goes like this. We made this video. Uh, with Brantford in New York City. I drove in New York cab. Uh, then in 95, he called and asked me if I would uh, write a, an end title song for his great movie, Clockers. I think it's one of his great ones. And uh, he has so many. And I just had, Shaka Khan had called me right around the same time and said hey, said, hey, would you write a song with me? And I said, yes, come to Virginia. Because I heard Shaka, look, I love her to death, but I heard she was famous for making a meeting at noon and showing up many hours late. That's Later. called being Shaka, yes. <laughs> so, so I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to wait on her, I'm going to wait in my house. So she came, and we had the best time. We wrote this, the song Love Me Still. And then Spike, right around the time we were writing it, he calls me and said, hey, uh, I'd like, I'd like an entitled, I need an entitled song. What do you got? I said, well, Shaka and I are writing this song. And, we'll get, and he said, okay, well, I claim it. And so that's as simple as wow. that. Wow. <laughs> Without and, even having heard the song, he was just like, that's well, it. Well, I guess I so, claim first read a refusal. I, oh, know, okay, I, okay, gotcha. You, you know, I guess. So wait, uh, were you initially trying to put that on her, on another album of hers, or? It was just, we're just writing a song. It was, it was for her, though. It was for, okay. it was, it was, she, she was writing the words. She was going to sing it. Uh, so, and she's done it great. She's on her greatest hits record. And then six years later, he asked me again for Bamboozled. And this time, though, he wanted it to be specific to the the, the, the script, to the story. I guess it's Damon Wayans' character, mm-hmm. right? And so I basically wrote it from his point of view. And uh, and look, I, so that was that ended up being the entitled song for that. And then years, so he kept asking me for little, little bits and pieces for movies. But then in 2008, he called me and said, hey, uh, I want you to score. I'm doing. I'm doing this documentary, ESPN documentary on the late great Kobe Bryant. It's called Kobe Doing Work, and I'd like you to score. So I think this was my audition. 
So I, that was my first one. And that was 2008, came out in 2009, I believe. And then all the way up through last year with the She's Gotta Have It Part 2, the second yeah. season, I did a bunch of stuff, probably six or seven full scores and some little incidental music. So in that time, 11 years, I wrote probably almost 240 different pieces of music. And now and then I would think, man, this song, this piece, this instrumental cue, it sounds like it needs to be expanded into a song. So I started doing that three years ago and I started giving myself chills while doing this because the, the, the cues themselves were very vibey, cinematic, and that became my record, Absolute Zero. And then I came, followed it up with, you know, just last week came out, Non-Secure Connection, also uh, chock full of, of, of score Spy music games. that became songs. Yeah, Sky Spike music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And do you, um, you know, when you talk about your songwriting process, I was curious to know, do you think of yourself as a singer or is it just kind of your voice is just the, the, I guess, the vehicle to kind of get it out. Like if someone came to you and was like, yo, I have a song I wrote for you. Is that something that you have explored before? Oh, people writing songs for me to do? Yeah, yeah, it's for no, you to I, sing specifically as a singer. Yeah, no, I don't, I, people usually don't do that much, but I, I, I have had that. <laughs> uh, I, look, I, if there was ever a book written about me, it should be called Slow Learner. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 and I feel like as a vocalist, uh, what I do now is far, far exceeds what I did then, just on a soulful level and expressive mm -hmm. level. And uh, so, so yeah, I'm just deep. People ask me, well, do you have any interest in doing this and scoring films, blah, 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 or, and, or doing this and that? I say, look, I'm just really trying to do what I do better and better. Um, yeah. And I also tell them that I'm like Tom Hagen in The Godfather, who has one client as a lawyer, Don Corleone. I'm, as a film composer, I'm the same. I have one client, Spike Lee. <laughs> I'm not interested in doing this for other people. We have a special relationship, and so that's... No, nah, y'all have a synergy, man. It definitely is. It's just, you know, when you were des describing your your, your style, kind of like the Bill Evans meets the him kind yeah. of thing. Yes. It, it yeah. fits his... I mean, it fits the tone of his movies. Like the thing you guys have, it works, man. It, it really yeah. Does well, work. he he just likes what I do. He called me up last week about something uh, and said, "Look, just I'm going to keep calling you because I like what you do." So, uh, <laughs> so that's not. I I, I love cool. him. I tell you what. I'll tell you one great Spike story. Speaking of the uh, the Bill Lee, the uh, mm -hmm. the. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, we were recording that with Leslie Odom Jr. singing yeah. uh, uh, from Hamilton. Hamilton, and, yeah. And he's, he's, he was in uh, Harriet Tubman lately. He's had a great post-Hamilton career. Anyway, we're doing recording in, in, in Brooklyn, recording Leslie and uh, with a, a great jazz group backing us up. And uh, so I said, hey, Spike, I need a ride to my hotel somewhere in the middle, middle of the, the session. He said, yeah, no problem. We'll get it. So the session ends and he says, hey, let's, it's a nice day. Let's just walk to your hotel. So we go out in the street, just the two of us. And man, it was like walking with, I don't know. I mean, MLK. <laughs> I mean, he was Spike Lee. <laughs> well, I just, I was just, I just loved it. People are hanging out of cars, hanging out of apartments. Yo, Spike, yo, Spike. And it was, I said to him, is it always like this? Yeah, pretty much. But then later on, you know, Spike, Spike, Spike. And he looks at me and says, well, maybe today's a little more intense than usual. <laughs> but it was, we had the best time. It was a beautiful November afternoon in Brooklyn. And we just walked and walked and walked. 
and uh, it's, just my, it's one of my great Spike Lee moments, is walking with him while he's just getting the love from, you know, he, he was just getting his king of, his Bro- Brooklyn. of Brooklyn. Yeah. Exactly right. It's just fantastic. So let me ask you, so with where we are now, today in Corona and the world's slowed down, I know for a lot of musicians, this is the time period in which uh, the portals of a lot of ideas are opening up. And, you know, again, you've done bluegrass work with Ricky Skaggs and, you know, jazz work and all this other things. Like, what what have you... Yeah. What have you been trying to cook up as of late? Like, how have you how have you spent the last, well, as of this recording, six seven months? Oh my yeah, God, well, it, it, yeah, in, er, in, in early mid March when the quarantine shutdown era began, uh, obviously, like everyone else, I wasn't going to go go anywhere. But I have this great facility, this great studio, so I just decided, okay, well, I'm going to try to take the deep dive and <laughs> and try to really take it to another level. So I wrote six songs in six weeks from mid-March to the end of April. Then I had to go do a few other things, some music for other records, et cetera. But uh, uh, and I had to learn how to play these the songs off this current new record because now we're in the remote era and so you have yeah. to perform in your house. Uh, and and <laughs> so I did that. And I was just in LA last week working with... Uh, with Tony Berg, who says hi to you, Questlove. He, uh, Tony Berg has a studio in Brentwood on Kenter, and he said you worked there with a woman named Susan Rogers, an yeah. engineer. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's Prince yeah. engineer. Yeah. 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 That's right. So he he says hello. Tony Berg's a great, great producer. He produces produced Fiona Apple, some of her great records. He produces yeah. Yeah. young girl Phoebe Bridgers, who's sort of all the rage in that world. Uh, very, very strong. So that's what I've been doing, just uh, just working on new stuff. And that's, I'm lucky. I, just like, I guess, all of us, we get to do what we love to do for a living. And yeah. so I'm just uh, continuing to try to be creative. I, I, at this point in my career, sometimes I'm trying to make a sound that I've never heard before. <laughs> so it takes me far afield into, again, dodecaphonic stylings. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> there you go. You were coming up where your kids, uh, like, were they aware that, you know, their dad was Bruce Hornsby? Like, how did you navigate being a musician and a parent? And what was well, that? I think, I think they gradually, it just, as you grew up as a kid, you, you sort of gradually become awake, you know, you, <laughs> you, you, you wake up every year a little bit more. And so they, they knew about it, say, when they were seven or eight, where they'd go see. We did a tour, and when they were six, Bonnie Raitt, Jackson Brown, Sean Colvin, and I, and David Lindley did a tour. The boys came around on this tour, and, you know, they're at Red Rocks and seeing a big crowd of 9,000 going crazy for their grizzled old coot of a dad. And uh, so, anyway, that, that's they've enjoyed it. My boys are fans of what I do. And that's so up, that's man. really, really nice. Really cool. So okay, before we let you go, I do have one question. So obviously, you you got a long, long mileage out of the way it is uh, via Tupac, but did you ever foresee or think that there would be a time in which, even twenty years after Tupac, that the way it is would come back again? I know that Polo G 
Uh, Polo G, yeah, Polo wishing G, for yeah. a hero, man. Yeah, yeah, they wish for a hero. So I, I love it. I really love what Polo G did. We got uh, uh, out of the blue in maybe February of this year. We got reached out to by his people saying, Polo G would like to fly to Virginia to ask your permission. I said, well, just send me the thing. And I heard it. And I went, man, save your Wait, time rappers still do that? <laughs> well, <laughs> they fly I, out I, and ask for permission and put person in. <laughs> Wait, they, that's, a, that's really a thing? Well, it, well, it was you in this case. It. it was in this case. Uh, <laughs> so, so I said, hey, save your time and money. I love what you did. It's called Wishing for a Hero. And, uh, and yes, we may work together at some point. Yeah, the odd couple. Kind of like Spike wow. and Bruce, another odd couple. <laughs> That's cool. It <laughs> works so, though, man. It works. So, well, well, look, I, I just, uh, I love what I love what Tupac did. It's a positive message, mm-hmm. and same with Polo G. The, the the video is beautiful. This record has this great gospel choir coming in and sort of halfway through and taking you home with it. It's I love it. So I, I'm I'm proud and grateful to these great uh, young artists for. Uh, for their uh, interest in my music at least that song anyway <laughs> no that's that you know that's the i always wondered if if that, that myth is really real like on in on television and movies you always hear this thing about like it just takes one song to change your life and then you know that i guess uh i think carl douglas creator of what is now the unplayable Kung Fu fighting. Kung Fu fighting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> once, right. No, once Van Lucy said that, you know, just that one song can, you know, can change your life and you don't have to work another day again. Like you got this one song to fall back on. But uh, uh, maybe I'm going to try to get uh, those cats was fast as lightning. Maybe I'm going to try to get that <laughs> lyric into my next one. <laughs> there you go. There you I'm go. sorry. I cut you off. What'd you say, man? No, no, no. no. I, yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah. No, I was saying that, well, you confirmed it then. But, I mean, I also know that you're not in the game just to monetarily, you know, kick off no. a, you know, burn $100 bills with the cigar or burn cigars with $100 bills. So you, I'd love you should see that. I'll go to the whole house with Huey Lewis. That's yeah. the reality <laughs> show. Yeah, so, <laughs> Huey is there. Maybe I'll start burning hundreds. No, I don't think so, though. I'll, I'll, I'll leave that to uh, the Wolf of Wall Street guy, you know, Dica- DiCaprio and them. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, we thank you very much, uh, Bruce, for being on the show today. And uh, oh, that's been amazing. Been thank you, man. Fans. And fan. yes, we, we are still, I listen to our version of Love Me Still from The Tonight Show. Well, I'm and, so glad you brought it up. Can I just end with my quest love story? So, yes. So, yes. So, yes. Yes, please. Okay. So we're, we're in that little, <laughs> that little rehearsal room. It's tiny. Right. And, uh, so a your piano player, the bad James dude, I don't, yeah, he, he says, Hey, can we play love me still? So I say, sure. So we're playing it in the normal way. And all of a sudden, I guess you had this great idea to play it as a slow shuffle. So we said, so can, can we try it this way? So we start playing and we're playing a little bit. And I guess, so, so you, you made the greatest sort of producer sort of request. You said, hey, play it like you're drunk. Which was great because, because what I really felt was, uh, I was, what I think you really meant, truly you meant was, 
hey, man, you're a little on top. We're laying back. All behind. You, always. always. You, just, always. You, need to, you just need to get back with us. Yeah. So, I, so I started really sitting on it. And what a feel. The next time I came back, we had to do it again. And now my band plays Love Me Still, the Questlove version. Wow. Yikes. Okay. Yes. Remix. Now, wow. now Questlove's yeah. going to have to cover that version before you recover and cover your version. <laughs> Be my <laughs> guest whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks, man. But one of All right. Here. Well, we got to do it. We got to do oh, it now. Sounds that room, great. Okay. That room was going crazy that day. Yeah. That's, that's probably <sighs> one of our moments. Yeah. That, that's, that's a top... 10 moment inside that room mm-hmm. well you, it was you and weird al playing uh accordion with us yes that, that i put that wow. up there definitely <laughs> definitely up there. No, well i'll take it I, I, i'll be uh lumped in with weird al anytime he's a bad oh, man. dude weird al. he is a bad dude <laughs> he, he can go man he can go. you're all bad dude. <laughs> this is quest love uh thank you very much bruce orangeby for joining us and uh we'll see you on the next go round of quest love supremo it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Nah, thank, thank you for your time, Bruce. Bruce Peace, Thanks for the music. Thank you, Bruce. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.